0: Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. To we hope you enjoy the sermon. What we're going to talk about this week and next is what can I know for sure about who I am. What we're going to talk about tonight um, is actually identity, where it comes from, uh, how we try to get it. Um, And to do that, we're going to read a story uh, that some of you might be familiar with. It's Jesus' interaction with two very, very different people uh, in one scene. So this is from Luke 7. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to a Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. If you're not familiar with it, Pharisees were the religious officials of the first century um, in the Jewish religion. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life, does anybody know what the euphemism is, what that's for? She's a prostitute. Okay. Learn that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with tears. She wiped them with her hair, kissed them, poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, "This man, If this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One of them owed 500 denarii and another 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? And Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman came into your house You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her sin, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests begin to say among themselves, Who is this that even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And as we hear this story, I pray that we would not only see ourselves, but we would see your heart. That the way we relate to you is really broken with a lot of caricature and misunderstanding. Uh, that your goodness and that your grace far surpass what we could imagine. And we hold you at arm's length because we don't believe that this story is true. And we need you to actually make our hearts soft to the realities of who you are and how you actually relate to us. So please be with us, Holy Spirit, in your name we pray. Amen. So we're launching right in. Who are the Pharisees? If you've been around the church or Sunday school or anything like that, you know... They're the religious conservatives of the first uh, century that Jesus is always picking on. Uh, they're experts in the Bible. Uh, they're very good people. They're very, very well-mannered and well-behaved. Um, but it's kind of not about that, what's going on right here. What you need to think of when you think about the Pharisees and you're reading them in their first century context is this. They were the people who were the best at the thing that their culture said these are the most important things to be best at. That's who they were. We look at them through our 21st century eyes and evaluate them from uh, this time and this place, and we kind of actually evaluate them wrongly. That's not how the first readers would have evaluated them. We were like, ah, religious conservatives, ancient Near East, patriarchal society, so many problems. Then we think, ah, we're so much better than them, which of course then means we're exactly like them. But... (laughs) When we do that, we actually fundamentally miss what's going on in the passage. These were the guys who were the best at the things that their culture said were the most important things to be best at. This is a conservative, rural, ancient, Near Eastern culture. What is the most important thing to be best at? Religious observance. They were the best. This text, and when we encountered the Pharisees, in some ways, especially in this text, It's not about the merits or your opinions or my opinions about the importance of observing the Old Testament law. If if we kind of encounter it that way, we don't understand it. That's not what Jesus wants us to deal with. He's actually pressing deeper into our psyche, into our human experience, to our utter fascination and obsession with attaching our identity and our self-worth and our value to what we make of ourselves. Jesus is actually making a, a comment or a point about our tepid response to who Jesus is. Toward the conclusion of his conversation with Simon, he remarks about their reaction to him. He says, I came and you offered me no water for my feet, no kiss and no oil for my head. These were all common markers of hospitality for an honored guests." And Jesus is saying like, this woman did these extravagant signs of welcome that she was so grateful to be with me, but you didn't even give me the normal signs of an honored guest. They're absent. And so the question is actually, the first question is, why do they respond so casually to Jesus? And we kind of have to get at it. This is how I want to get at it, is this way, is through thinking about your special thing, what makes you unique. And um, now I'm not saying, there's actually nothing wrong with the special things in and of themselves. That's what you need to hear me say first. The things that are unique about you uh, some of the things are very special about you, they're actually not wrong in and of themselves. That's not what we're talking about is judging the merits of your special thing versus other special things and all that kind of stuff. This is the question. What function do our special things have in our own psyche and sense of self? How do they function to you? Does that make sense? That's a different question. That's not what are they. That's actually, it's more important to ask how do they function in your life, in your psyche, in your soul, in your sense of self. Because most often what they are, and certainly they extend beyond simply kind of interesting hobbies or interesting fact about ourselves. You know, we can go much deeper and think more deeply about this. What I'm really talking about is the things that you fall back on, uh, is your kind of fallback plan for worth and identity and value. Because what happens every day is we go out, we woke up this morning and we tried today. Everybody tried. We all woke up. You tried. I tried. But the day doesn't always go right. Sometimes it does. A lot of times it doesn't. And that's what, when the day doesn't go right, when we experience failure or we're uh, intimidated by other people's peer success, we go and access our special things. Uh, When you don't get the grade, don't get the bid, you do things you said you wouldn't do, Or you promised you would try not to do again, or you do the things you said, uh, that you didn't do the things you said you were going to do. You see other people succeed where you didn't, right? Where you ate the food you didn't want to eat, when you acted like your parents and you said you never would, when you were judgmental, mean, or you didn't work out, or you saw someone do better, or you hated what you saw in the mirror. What happens in all those moments of personal failure, and also those moments of comparison, right? is we go back to our list of things that are unique about us that we can say, at least I, right? Either we kind of have a list of at least I's or at least I'm not's. And we access that so we can then begin to feel better about ourselves and restore our sense of value and our sense of self that was taken away from us either by our own failure or by comparison. At the end of the day, we all have some at least I's and at least I'm not. And it can be a lot of different things. It can be religious, right? You come to RUF or you went to Bible study, right? At least you kind of take Christianity seriously in some ways that some of your friends don't. It can be moral, not necessarily religious, but moral, right? And we have this scale of how we kind of grade ourselves out and give us, you know... Like, I make out, but we're not having sex. Um, we're at, I'm having sex, but no hookup. I drink underage, but I'm not drunk. I'm drunk, but I'm not high. I'm high, but not hard drugs, right? We all have this scale of at least I, or at least I'm not, uh, that we go and access. It can be cultural. You know, Greek or indif- Greek and independent, right? Greeks feel superior because they're Greek, and the independents feel superior because they're independent. Everybody feels better than each other. That's not good. Right, it's, But it's not just that, it's, it, it can be your politics, uh, it can be all the different kind of cultural and social ways we identify ourselves as more, uh, as superior to others, some at least eyes. We can also be really subversive with this. I'm Gen X, I'm not a millennial. Some of you have been caught the wrath of a Gen Xer, and I apologize for that, I'm totally not always fair to millennials. Because one of the things that Gen Xers do is we're like, at least I'm cynical, right? And sometimes (laughs) your last defense is I have a secret cynical insight that no one else understands. And I often see people, and this might be you at Stanford, which is UC Stanford, you're not quite who you thought you were, and so your secret at least I is at least I'm not like dominated or beholden to Stanford achievement culture like everyone else, Right, We can be really subversive with the way things we come up with to give us a sense of value, to kind of save us, to give us identity. Um, and what's more important than actually debating the merits of all those different kinds of special things, what's more important than debating the merits of them is actually understanding why all of us have them and how they function in our lives. Because they're what we consult to get a durable sense of identity, right? A durable sense of self or worth to make us feel okay about who we are, it's what we go to to get a sense of value. But there's two problems with this process that are, that are pretty, they're pretty bad. The first one is when you get your value or worth from special things about you, it actually always, it only functions if you're allowed to deny dignity or value to others. So the source of all oppression is when we deal with our, all oppression, all abuse, all neglect, is when we decide to gather our sense of value from our special things and unique things about us. Here's what I mean. The point of an at least I is to have something other people don't. That's the point of it, right? That, that's why it's I, at least I or at least I don't. It derives its power to give you a sense of self by saying, I have something other people don't have. I have acquired or I like something about myself that other people don't have. That's the origin of all oppression and abuse and neglect, both on a social level but also on an individual level. It begins when we identify special things about ourselves that are unavailable to other classes and types of people so that we can get a sense of worth and identity, so we can get absolution. That's what we're seeking. This is a silly example. It, it, it's shallow, but we do, I actually still even use this own example in my own life. This happens, right? So you're, you're in your major, and they're the most intimidating thing at Stanford is y'all are all smart, and y'all kind of have a sense of being smart. It's okay. I know that y'all know that about yourselves. Um, but then you get to Stanford, and then they're the smart people at Stanford and you're like, "Oh my gosh, they're the smart person at Stanford." This is how everybody else felt relating to you in high school by the way, cuz I was one of the everybody else. But it's okay. I'm getting over it, trying to not. But um so you encountered that person who's crushing it in your class or your major. And now all of a sudden you're intimidated by that. You're looking at your kind of own failure, your own mediocrity, and you've got to deal with it somehow. And so let th- again, this is kind of playful, but Well, at least I'm in shape, I exercise, I lift, I run, whatever, right? So they're a nerd, yeah, they're crushing it, but you got to have your thing that you consult that gives you a sense of value again, right? And so what's happened is you've had to create two classes of people, right? People like me who have this and people like them who don't. And the express purpose of creating those classes is to give yourself a sense of value. See, it's about value right so in doing so it only works to give you a sense of identity a sense of significance and value if you can actually deny them a measure of value and dignity and identity on the basis of your at least I all personal forms of abuse neglect social forms of oppression are actually born out of the way we actually cope with our incessant insecurity this is the Pharisees and we all think we're better than them because they do it with conservative religious observances, but even in making that judgment about the Pharisees, we actually just did the same thing, but according to a different culture set of values. So the first problem with the at least I is that it requires, it is by building our sense of self off of an at least I, off our special thing, over our unique contribution, what's special about me, is it only works if you deny a little bit of dignity and value to others. It is a tool of oppression. I would argue it's the tool of oppression. It's where it all starts. But not only that, not only that problem, you you feel the Pharisees not wanting the woman around right here, right? It's pregnant with how repulsed they are by her. But it's not only the problem, there's a social, a radical social problem with that. There's also a personal problem with it. When you get value from the special things about you, it actually always, and we all know this because we experience, it fails to remove the fear and anxiety that we hoped it would remove. That's why we have to keep going back to it. It fails to give us the main thing we need, which is not just an identity. We need a durable identity. A durable identity is something that survives adverse circumstances in life and personal failure. So when bad things happen to you and when bad thing, when you do bad things. Right? So, if your identity, if your worth is how you look, your achievement, or your grades, can adverse circumstances and personal failure take those away? Absolutely. My guess is most of us have experienced that on some level. If your identity is actually your lover, or your social prowess, or your social status, can adverse circumstances, personal failure, take those away? Absolutely. If it's your moral performance, if it's your religious observance, you get your sense of self from those things. Can adverse circumstances, personal Failure, take those away. Absolutely. Pride in your family. Adverse circumstances, personal failure, take that away. Absolutely. Here's a really tricky one. Your victimhood. I've seen in the course of my life, and maybe you've experienced this firsthand, maybe it's been you, victims become victimizers. We can make the thing that absolves us our victimhood. I'm not denying that we're not real victims of real injustice at different times, that different people in here have stories. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about giving ourselves absolution and identity by those things. But then you find out that maybe you become, I know people who've become victimizers because they're victims. And then all of a sudden, guess what? Adverse circumstances and personal failure took that identity away. The problem is that all these narratives that we've constructed for ourselves can be taken away by adverse circumstances and personal failure. So we're either consciously or subconsciously always aware that our means for making making something ourselves could always implode. And the way one writer said it is this, the self-made identity based on our own performance and achievement actually makes our self-worth far more fragile in the face of failure and difficulty. There's no freedom, and we know this, We experience psychologically this all the time. There's no freedom in basing your identity and worth in making something of yourself. It's an anxiety-ridden and soul-devouring endeavor from beginning to end. It's slavery. It's addiction. We know it. We don't know how to get out of it. We end up oppressing ourselves and oppressing others. And that's really my first point is actually just bringing to our minds and kind of wrestling with the oppression of identity making. It's oppressive to ourselves and it's oppressive to others when we craft our identity from what we make of ourselves. And that's who the Pharisees were. Here's what is offered to us in Jesus is the freedom of guilt. Because when you read this story, who is free in this passage? Jesus actually wants us to feel uncomfortable with someone in this passage, in this encounter, because of the radical freedom they have. Because they are wildly unconstrained by social expectations, they're impervious to social shame, and it's the woman. She's the most morally reprehensible person in this story, but also in the town, and she's busting in on the party with all the pastors. She is encountering and experiencing in a real and true and deep way. Not trying to. She is someone who is experiencing the freedom of guilt. The omnipresent slavery of identity making that we all share is actually our soul's response to our guilt. And at times we experience guilt acutely. right? The deep shame of sin or shame that comes with the awareness that we're not who we're supposed to be that we haven't loved the way we should have loved, that we've left undone the good things we should have done, that we've done the things we shouldn't have done, that we've presented ourselves as being one person while in fact being another person. We have an acute sense of guilt. Even if you don't like the language of sin, you even uh, we feel illegitimate. But on the other hand, so sometimes we all experience acute sense of guilt. We can actually call it that, whether or not you're a Christian, right? We have this experience of it. On the other hand, what I think is more common Is that actually because the language of sin and guilt feels heavy-handed and we don't like to use it and we want to avoid using it, we leave it unnamed and we rename it, or we try to deny this existence of guilt? And the problem of this, is the evidence of its existence is still all around us and in us at all times. This is the way one writer said it, reflecting on how Freud and Nietzsche both kind of talked about the expectation that guilt would eventually be gone in a culture that gets rid of language about God. This is uh, his summary of Freud. He says, such, Freud was said such guilt is hard to identify and hard to understand since it's so frequently dwelled on on an unconscious level and could easily be mistaken for something else. It often appears to us, Freud argued, as a sort of malaise or dissatisfaction for which people seek other explanations, whether external or internal. Guilt is crafty. It's a trickster. It's a chameleon. It's capable of disguising itself, hiding out, changing its size, appearance, even its location." all the while managing to persist and deepen. The restlessness we feel, the anxiety, the anger, the judgmentalism we find ourselves engaging in. Judgmentalism is the fruit of the guilty trying to find someone else more guilty so we can absolve ourselves. That's what judgmentalism is. Our depression, our numbness to things, we have a hard time locating the deep origin of those things, those experiences that we have, because we're overwhelmed with the prospect that they come from our insurmountable sense that something's deeply wrong with us. We don't want that to be the location of those feelings because it's not just simply that we misbehave, but even that the best behaving out of us knows that something's wrong. And so denying the category of moral guilt because it's too heavy, because it's hard to deal with, because we don't like that language, is like the denying the existence of cancer just because it's too heavy and it's too hard to deal with. In so doing, you actually only become more sick and not less. We're doing with our hearts what I actually do with my credit card statements every now and then. They come, and I know they're going to be bad, and so I don't open them. And we're like... It just won't feel as bad as long as I pretend that credit card statement doesn't exist. Does pretending credit card statements doesn't exist actually cause them to cease to exist? Does anybody have personal experience with this? I can tell you. That doesn't cause them to cease to exist. Um, Spoiler alert. (laughs) We're kind of like the memoirist Mary Carr, if you've read her book Lit about her own story with alcoholism and she says I have a disease whose defining symptom is believing that you don't have a disease and this is what this woman has in this story it's not that disease she has something that we instinctively dread but actually if we can get to the other side of the story we could envy and she has this she can no longer hide who she is because she's a whore and everyone knows it a whore in an ancient Near Eastern conservative farming village is under no delusion about who they are. She doesn't have any at least eyes. She knows. She's at the bottom. And the invitation to durable, lasting identity and value and worth actually begins with sorrow over Guilt diving headlong not simply into grieving our misbehavior but behavior is always a fruit of what's in the heart it's actually taking our behavior and asking where does that even come from that even in my best moments because what you begin to discover is wow actually even in my best moments what is in the center of my heart is love for me I can be really good to you out of love for me and Jesus when he summarizes the law he says, this is what humans were made for. They are made to love God and to love each other. To love God and to love others. That fundamentally the way we are oriented, wired, created is to be other-oriented beings. And the heart of sin, the heart of misbehavior, the heart of guilt, all of it is that we became fundamentally self-oriented. We can even be nice and be self-oriented. That's who the Pharisees were. Jesus is exposing that like, no, they were still about self at the end of the day. God made us at the very beginning to be other-centered beings. To be human is to have a heart completely engaged in love for God and love for people. And all the sad things that we do to each other are always rooted in loving the self over against loving God and loving our neighbor. And it's sad that even the most of the nice things that we do for each other are done in self-interest too. Right? When you, this is the invitation. When you finally get to the desperation of honest guilt before God, then you're on the verge of three things that are incredibly possible, that none of us think are possible. Real freedom, true freedom, not just an idea. Real joy, deep joy that actually can't be taken away by adverse circumstances or personal failure. And the other one is genuine friendliness, actual friendliness. Genuine concern for others. Not playing at friendliness, which is what we do most of the time. We're we're going to talk about that one actually specifically in two weeks. But true freedom, because freedom is not the capacity to do whatever you want. You can't do whatever you want. You can do a lot of things you want, but that's not freedom. This is what freedom is. Freedom is the absence of the need to justify ourselves. A free person is not a person who has more at least eyes than anybody else. A free person is a person who never says, at least I, ever again. Or when I, or at least I'm not, or one day I will. A free person is a person that doesn't ever have to use that language, ever again. Y'all know, many of you know I love the movie Fight Club. I love it because of the ways it talks about freedom. It doesn't finish the thought, but it always starts it when the narrator says, I found freedom. Losing hope was freedom. It, but it's not just losing hope. That's, that's not the whole story. It's actually losing all hope that you can absolve yourself, that you can make an own your own durable, sustaining, worth, and identity on your own. When you actually finally, when we enter into the freedom produced by genuine, honest guilt, Then what is opened up before you is the joy of forgiveness and a durable identity in Jesus. Because what can a whore in a rural conservative ancient Near Eastern village do to make something of her life or to erase who she's been? The answer is nothing. All she has is the hope of grace. The woman actually gets that her only hope is that she can be forgiven. Her identity is not something she achieves, it's something that she receives. She mucked it up, everything that she made of herself, and Jesus offers forgiveness. And her identity is this, this is her identity, recipient of grace, forgiven, loved by God. Her identity is not what she's made of herself. Her identity is what God has spoken over her. It's His grace. She is done with self-justification. She's free. She is rejoicing in joy over encountering the forgiveness of Jesus in a way in which she doesn't care what people think and she's not beholden to the social norms because that's what joy does. When people believe that they need big forgiveness, they seek a big savior and you're full of big joy. This is how Jesus closes talking to them. This is, it's not objective metrics about debt that somehow they had less debt. It's about their perception of their debt to justice. Because here's the thing about forgiveness. It's pretty useless as a sentiment when it's just a sentiment or a philosophy. Forgiveness can actually only transform you. You can only actually get into your life and really begin to change who you are to give you freedom and to give you joy. When you acknowledge the real, objective, historical presence of two things, you have to acknowledge, we have to actually encounter the fact that these things are real in the world. They're not just ideas. And the first one is this, that there's just real law. There is real moral law that God embedded and structured reality with. And sometimes I think that's probably where a lot of us get hung up. We don't want to bring the full reality of the fact that God gave moral structure to the world. We don't want to bring that reality and all the guilt it brings with it and the confusion it brings with it because so many people live so differently. We think if we say, I believe there's moral law, that we're going to sound mean. But the existence of moral law is kind of like the existence of guilt. It's there whether or not you acknowledge its presence and we see the evidence of it all the time. All of us today encountered the evidence that there is moral structure to the universe. Has anyone seen on social media today, I don't know, moral outrage about something? Has anyone ever gotten irritated with a roommate or a friend or a parent because they did something not the way you wanted them to do it and you thought they should behave differently? Has anyone in here been angry? Has anyone had the desire to tell people that, hey, I think you're thinking the wrong way or maybe doing wrong things and you should do things differently? The instinct that when someone else does something wrong, that something unpleasant, when you think, because of the way I acted, I don't want to associate with them anymore, that is you saying justice demands that there is an unpleasant thing that happens to you. It's you actually accessing This internal instinct that there has to be moral law and justice. And you can't experience the joy of forgiveness and you can't have a durable identity until you actually embrace and actually let the moral law completely undo us. Is it scary? Absolutely. Can we debate about it all day? That's another sermon for another day. Is it offended? Yes, when we find out we're, that someone else is telling us we weren't the person we're supposed to be, yes, we're going to get offended. Are we Are going to be defensive? Yes, we always are. And it's okay if you've identified as a Christian in the past and you've drifted far from Jesus and you've become someone that you never thought you would become and you're daunted by the prospect of coming back to law because you know it's going to reveal some harsh realities about our hypocrisy. Yeah, it's scary. I'm not denying any of that. It's always scary in the Bible when people encounter the moral structure of the universe. But real forgiveness and durable identity aren't available to truly change us until we acknowledge, no, there's real law that has to be present. Because additionally, the second thing that has to be present is that there's a real canceling of what we owe justice. There's an actual judicial or just transaction Jesus' life is bringing to bear that forgiveness is not just an idea. It's not just a philosophy. It's a real world transaction of justice in which the aggrieved party actually pays the price for the offender. In a civil suit, a defendant who scammed other people out of millions of dollars and is being sued, he doesn't need the judge to say, hey, you should take the idea of forgiveness deep into your heart and that will help. That doesn't help. He needs the person that he owes money to to say, your debt is canceled. The philosophy of forgiveness doesn't help him. The transaction of justice of canceling debt is what he needs. That's a real historical event. Just thinking forgiveness is an important principle to think upon. That should eventually probably just becomes another at least least I value forgiveness. I don't know. We probably just judge people with that too. We need something to happen in the real world. The economy of justice runs in different realms than simply financial debt. That's an illustration. But when we dismiss our roommate, here's, why, here's what happens. When we dismiss our roommate, they're made in God's image. And that's why when we defraud or dismiss or sin against or hurt them, we've ultimately, it's actually sin against God. When David confesses his sin against his neighbor, he actually prays. In Psalm 51, God is really against you of sin. Because when you defraud someone's image... Right? God identifies himself with every person. You defraud them. Take your high school yearbook, scribble on their image. You're not sinning really so much against your yearbook as you are against the person, that you're, their image you're scribbling on. That's how God views the way we treat each other. That we're defrauding his image. This is why I'm mistreating people so egregious to God. There's a debt then to justice that is created and that's what Jesus pays at the cross. He endured the cross for the joy set before Him. He canceled the record of debt that stood against you by nailing it to the cross. Faith is not taking a philosophy in your heart that you hear into your heart. Faith is believing that in this world, Jesus satisfies the law's demands for you at the cross and that you are forgiven because the debt has been paid. Jesus doesn't say it's okay. he says to her, He says, Your sins are forgiven. We say it's okay because we feel bad telling someone that they did something wrong and we think it makes us sound mean or we think we're better than them when we say you're forgiven. But Jesus says what we need to hear you're forgiven. And Jesus, what you have in His forgiveness is a steadfast identity because it's based on a verdict given to you by your Creator. It is unearned, it is given by grace. No one's beyond the need of grace and no one's beyond the reach of grace. It is unthreatenable by failure or circumstances because it was never contingent on those things. It never required your personal perfect performance or perfect circumstances. All our other identity makers do. It gives you the capacity to be resilient in returning to Him in joy and in worship even when you sin. The confession insurance is there every week so that we can say, really, still? And He can say, yes, still. Here's what else it does. It actually frees up all your unique and special things. We had allocated all of those things to a self-justification project, right? Right? Now you can use them in a making beautiful things of God's world and serving one another project. You don't have to use them to give yourself identity anymore. You have one in Jesus. You can actually deploy those resources for something far more beautiful than self-justification. They can be deployed in the service of love for God and love for neighbor instead of identity formation. That means when you fail in them, your identity is not threatened. Grace is the only identity that doesn't deny dignity of others but instead invites them in because it's received freely in spite of who we are instead of because of who we are. So we can never dismiss, disregard, devalue, or judge anyone. And when grace gets hold, you can never think of yourself as better than anyone else. Identity in Christ is not achieved, it's received. What this woman does in this passage is awesome. This is closed very briefly. When she pours out her perfume on Jesus' feet, something amazing is happening right there. She's actually very literally pouring out her identity because at that point in time, a whore's perfume was her brand. It was something they actually invested a lot of their income in to develop a personal scent that identified them and attracted men. It was her whole marketing budget in a very literal sense. It was the main thing that marked her as who she was and created her well-being. It attracted men. She invested in it. It was her unique identity. And in a very literal way, she pours it out at Jesus' feet. Because it's no longer her identity. Her identity is loved by God, in spite of who she's been, in spite of who she'll be tomorrow. Forgiven. Trusting that the transaction at the cross is it still true? It's still true. What about next week? Recipient of grace. She's loved. That's her identity. That's who God made you to be. That's the only special thing that can endure. That's the only thing that's durable, forgiven, and loved. Will you come to Him? Let's pray.